Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we noticed something about our 10-year-old daughter. She's starting uh, to rock her own fashion. Like, it's amazing uh, how early kids get self-conscious, but then it's incredible. I'm already seeing now, like, she has a fashion sense. And my wife and I noticed something uh, our 10-year-old was doing. She was wearing mom jeans. Yeah, like, I guess, I don't keep up with these things. Mom jeans are in style again. Like, the high-waisted thing, she had the high-waisted on, she had the t-shirt on, and, like, it was tucked in, and she had this little leather belt. Like, she really looked like my mom in 1991 with, like, the, the vim and the illegal cleaning supplies. Like, she really, and, and, and she's doing that on purpose. And my wife and I looked at each other, like, she's doing that on purpose. Somebody else thinks that's cool. And, and so it was like, there she is. She's riding the trend. She's 10, year, 10 years old, and she's picking up on the trends of her school. She's already getting the, these trends. And I found something to be true. I'm, I'm only 35 years old, but I've lived long enough to, 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 to notice something. That if you just spend enough time on planet Earth, things that were once fashionable go out of style. And then get, get this, Kingswood, Kingswood students that are here today, it's going to come back in style. It's going to come back. It's about 20 years. A couple weeks ago, I pulled out uh, an Adidas coat that I have that I literally bought 20 years ago. And I was wearing it. I was like, I was feeling fresh. Because style, it comes back around. It just does. And if you live long enough, it just comes around. But I've got a theory, though. At a certain point, as, a, as, a, as you mature and as you grow older, the, the trends, they come and go. And for a while, you kind of ride them, you adapt with them, you change styles a little bit. But the older you get, the less willing you are to ride the waves of the current trends. Can, am I right? At a certain point, a person just decides, you know what, I've gone far enough, I'm sticking with this. Like, I noticed my dad did that. Somewhere along the line, he decided, I'm going to wear blue Wranglers, white Nike Monarchs. Yeah? Google Nike Monarchs. They're the quintessential dad shoe. And I'm looking at all the dads that are wearing them right now. We know what you got. This is called a Nike Monarch. It's a white shoe. Anyway, white Nike Monarchs, my dad, and a golf shirt. That's, that, that's his uniform. He's like, you know what? I, I know that trends have changed, but I'm comfortable in this. And I don't care what you wear. I like my Wranglers. And that's, that's what you do. And I, I had the thought the other day. I was like, you know what? I, I bet you I'm getting close to that point where I'm just not going to be willing to go with trends. And I'm going to get stuck in skinny jeans. You know, and like my, I, I had this thought of like my son sitting in the front, like in, in, in church, like looking at me like, hey, check dad out. Look at dad out there with his skinny jeans, just rocking those skinny jeans. Look at him. He loves them. Just making fun of me. Right. Because that's what happens. At a certain point, you stop caring about the trends and the currents. And I, I actually think, like I said, we're having fun with it, but I think it's actually a sign of maturity. I actually do think it's a sign of maturity of how immovable you become. How rooted you become. Like, like a mature person and a person who's lived a little and been around a little, they, they stop valuing things that are fickle and things that come and go. And they invest themselves in things that matter more. And so they, you have this kind of rootedness that happens as you mature. I think it's, this, it's, it's a picture of maturity. I, I, I was around a guy, Doug Bacon, who's like in his, I think he's in his 80s. And uh, Doug was standing next to our, uh, one of our worship pastors, John Lamus, and they were dressed almost the same. It was amazing. <laughs> And John, John's like this young hipster, and Doug's cool now all of a sudden. So I was like, that's amazing. But Doug just doesn't care. He's like, I don't care if it's cool or not. I was wearing this when it wasn't cool. And like, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that happens as we mature where we just stop floating and flowing with the cultural trends and currents. And I think that's a picture of maturity in, in the real world, but it is definitely a picture of Christian maturity. 
Like how immovable you can become. How rooted are you? How, how rooted are you and how grounded are you? Do you get tossed to and fro by every wind of cultural change? Or are you connecting and growing into something that is actually superseding times and seasons and trends and currents? This is what we've been talking about in our series, this idea that there are no trends in the kingdom. That in the kingdom of God, there are no trends. There aren't, there's, there's, not, there's not no such thing as what's in fashion. There's just kingdom truth. And it is and was and always will be. And Paul actually tells us that, that part of being a Christian and part of being a mature Christian is being, like he said in 1 Corinthians 15, being steadfast and immovable. That I'm actually rooted to something greater. That I don't just change as soon as culture changes or as soon as my circumstances change. That I've actually got a steadfastness and a, and a rootedness in me that supersedes my circumstances. He at one point said, hey, you need to learn the secret of contentment. You need to learn that no matter what season you're in, whether you're rich or poor, high, low, in, out, no matter what, there's a way to be content that actually supersedes your circumstances. It's, there's a timeless contentment that's available for the believer. Think about Paul. I mean, this guy was like a reactive, a hyperactive jerk at first, and then he, he gets converted, he finds Jesus, and what do you see? You see his life gradually become more, more stabilized more steadfast and immovable. It's a sign of Christian maturity because, here's the deal, because God doesn't change, ever. God doesn't change. He said in Malachi 3, he says, I am the Lord, I change not. James tells us every good and perfect gift, James 1, every good and perfect gift comes out of the Father, Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God doesn't change his opinion. He doesn't throw out an amendment. He doesn't consult how things are going. He doesn't follow the stock market. He doesn't follow cultural currents and trends. He doesn't care if mom jeans are in style or skinny jeans are in style. God is just not into trends and fashion. He never changes. This is why Jesus said, hey, in Matthew 7, he said, after he told his, his, his sermon on the mount, he said, here, I'm inviting you to put your faith in me, to build your life on my word, me, and as you do that, you build your life on a rock that never, ever, ever, ever moves, regardless of how the winds of life and the rains of life and the winds of culture blow against you. As you root yourself on the rock that is me, you will never be moved. Jesus never changes. There are no trends in the kingdom of God, just timeless truth. And this is the reason why we're doing this series. If you're just joining us, we're in a series now, the second week of it called Trending where we're looking at what are the winds of culture right now? Where are we feeling the wind of culture blow? Where are we feeling the pressure? Where are we feeling the rain? Where are we feeling that sideways wind coming at us that we have to actually sit and ask ourselves, are we rooted on the rock of Christ or are we rooted in sand? And so we've been in this series called Trending for a couple weeks because to be Christian is to surrender yourself to the word of God. It's to build your life on the word of God. And, and I noted last week how we began... And we looked at, we live in a world, we call it I world. And we live in a world that values autonomy and individuality and self-authority above anything and everything else. And we looked at how actually that is counter to the, to the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is actually to give up your rights and to give up your right to be right, to give up your opinion and ascribe yourself, crucify yourself, die to self and to take on the identity of Christ. We talked about that last week. How you are no longer in charge. Jesus is. 
And so to be a Christian is to say, whatever this book says, whatever the Son said, whatever the Spirit tells me, I'm going to do it regardless of my opinion, regardless of my experience, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what my friends say, what my relationships demand, that this is the word that I subscribe to. That's, that's the heart behind this series. I received a message last week after the message I preached and uh, a lady, I'm, I'm going to read, read a clip of it. It's an anonymous message. And she said this, and this gets right to the heart of why I knew we needed to do this series. She said this. Uh, she said, I don't think it's fair that I have to decide whether or not I believe the Bible is good news or if I believe a person has the right to be who they want to be and love who they want to love. My 13-year-old nephew attended service with me, and he was confused too. And then she said this. I told him that God realizes the times have changed. So what she's saying there is this, and this is a common thing, and I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on her because a lot of you think this way, and I want to present this series as, as, as something to show that, that, that if you're following Jesus, that it doesn't work like that, that, that God is not changing according to the times. That if God's word is true, that means it's really true. That means it's not, it's not temporary. It's not molding or melding. It's not fluid, but it is a rock that won't be moved. And it doesn't care how much it fits or doesn't fit into the ethic of the culture. Doesn't care. And so you as a believer, you don't have, like, this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road in your identity. That you no longer have the right to say, hey God, come here a minute. I'm going to have a conversation. Just so you know, we don't think like that anymore. And uh, you, need to, you need to be okay with that. Do you see how that doesn't work? How can, how can God be God if you're dictating the terms? So the point of this series is to open the Bible and as objectively as we can, and we need to realize something, that, that none of us are entirely objective, but objectively as we can, ask God, what does your word say on the trends of the day? And this is, like I said last week, this is an insider conversation. This is not something that we're using to, to, to go and tell people where they're wrong and where they're in error. This is about where the church is in error. Understand? Yeah? East? Halifax? West? We good? So this is for us, just to, again, to re reiterate the ground rules. And so today, hey, you picked a great day to come to church, because today I want to talk about what's the word on sex. Ooh, just got a little, yeah, I want to talk about what's the word on sex. I don't think I have to explain to you that this is uh, something that we feel. This is something that is uh, very upfront in our culture. Now, sex has always been a thing. As long as we've been humans, we've figured that out, right? Like, we got that. We know it's part of being human. However, how we view and understand sex and how we engage sex every single day uh, is at a new level in human history. We live in the most hypersexed time in human history. Uh, sex is more uh, broadly thought of. The lines of sexuality are more broad. Uh, what sex is and what is healthy sex is more broad than has ever been uh, because we live in a world, like I said last week, that values autonomy and self-identification more than anything. And you aren't allowed to tell someone that something is right or wrong. So now we live in a world where if you want to express yourself sexually in a certain way, you can go ahead and do that to the point at which... Uh, not too long ago, I saw a TED Talk where a lady got up and said that pedophilia is a nat natural sexual orientation. And so this is the way that our culture is thinking. i got to tell you something. The Word has something to say about that. And the Word has something to say about that, that, that sex is more broadly understood than ever before. 
And sex is more accessible than ever before. It is in your face all the time. Images that you see in regular advertising would have been explicit material 30 years ago. We are so numb to it. It is absolutely everywhere. And so we need to have a conversation about sex. And, and let me just say this. I, I've had some of you who are like, well, I don't really know if I want to talk about sex in church. If we don't talk about it, if we don't talk about this, if we, don't, if we don't set the standard in our house, as for me and my house will serve the Lord, if we don't put that on the table, what's going to happen is our kids, our families are going to live thinking a certain way that has been more influenced by the substance of culture than the substance of the word. And so we've got to open the word and say, what does God have to say about sexuality and let that define us? And we cannot just allow that conversation to just take care of itself. Because let me tell you something, it's happening. And it is a serious conversation. And so we have got to pull that conversation out of the closet in the church. I think this is a reason for a lot of problems. So what's the word on sex? Are, are y'all paying attention anyway? I feel good. I feel like you're with me. That's good. All right, I got four things that I want to just write. I want you to write these things down because these, are all, these all matter when it comes to the conversation about sexuality. If there are uh, little, little kids in any of the rooms, um, yeah, you might have a conversation on the road home. So... Uh, because we're jumping in. So middle school, middle school is going to be all right, though. If you're a middle schooler, you're going to be okay. Um, number one, all right, if you're taking notes, write this down. I've got four things to frame the conversation surrounding sex. Number one, and this is super important, write this down. The word on sex is this. First and foremost, we as Christians fundamentally and unequivocally believe that sex is a gift from God. Yes. Got a couple of amens at the Valley Campus. All right, we got some amens. All right, preach, brother. Yeah. I want to confront a myth for a second. And I grew up, I grew up with this mythology, actually. And I just spoke to it about how we've avoided having conversations about sex and sexuality in the church to our demise. And I grew up where the idea of, of God and sexuality were things that you kind of kept apart. That you didn't think of your faith as something that was sexual. You didn't think about God in those terms. In fact, when you thought of God, sex was something you wanted to hide from him, right? Anybody grow up in church? That, that these were worlds apart. These weren't things that you thought of with God, engaging God. This is kind of this taboo. It's that sex was something that was very, very taboo. In fact, we wouldn't even like... Anybody remember when... Uh, like, I grew up in church, y'all. I remember... Like, we used to not say, like, she's pregnant even. You wouldn't even say that when, like, a woman was showing. Like, now we just say, yep, she got knocked up. We're a little more... Uh, but uh, it used to be... It used to be, she's in a family way. Remember that? Anybody remember that? She's in a family way? No? Nobody? Some of y'all didn't grow up in church. She's, oh, she's in a family way. That was, that was as far as it was going. Like, we don't want to think about that, or we don't want to talk about that. But there was this, there's this kind of taboo associated with it, uh, that, that Christians aren't sexual, that Christians don't know how to have good sex, that Christians don't value sexuality, that, that, that we, we, we don't even have positions it's just just it's just one it's called sex and oh it's getting real in here yeah yeah you came to church you didn't even know what you're gonna get yeah and like you see a family like they have three kids so they've obviously come together three times and that's right like right like relax relax there is this idea though and this ideology and I want to just like I want to kind of just destroy it. That, that sexuality and Christianity are mutually exclusive. No. They actually 
thrive best together. That it's, it's, it's an inextricable component of being Christian is how you view sexuality. And you've got to understand something that the Bible tells us that sex is good. It's not dirty. It's beautiful. God made it that way. And it's not something that we Christians, like a Christian couple is supposed to enjoy that. It's not something that like, you know, it's just for procreation and maybe on your birthday. Like that's not what that, that's not what that is. My wife asked me, she's like, you're not going to say anything embarrassing, are you? No, definitely not. Definitely not. Here's the fact. God made sex. God made sex. It was his idea. And, and like, the, do you ever think about that? Like, God made it. He came up with it. So, why, so here's some reasons for it. Here's some reasons for sex. Obviously, here's the, obvi here's the obvious one. God made it for procreation, right? It's in Genesis 1. Let me read it. Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and they may, that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and all the, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So think of the glory in that. Male and female, he created them. Now watch this. God blessed them and said to them, This is the first commandment in all the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply was the first commandment God gave to humanity. Did God know what he was asking Adam and Eve to do? He blessed them and he said, go make babies. Go do it. Have fun, kids. Go, go nuts, right? Like that's, that's what, that was the first commandment in the whole Bible to have sex and figure out, or have sex and, and make babies. And some of you at church have been pleasing God with your procreation ability. Just doing the Lord's work out here. Making babies over and over again. Uh, some, of you, some of you are super blessed in that. So you, you're like, just servant of the Lord. That's all I'm doing. Reason for sex number two. It, here's the thing. I think, I think we get that God made it for, for procreation. We get that because of the that God created everything. And obviously he put that together. But here's the deal, and you gotta, you gotta, we got to restore this in the church, that God made sex for pleasure. He made it for pleasure. Like, you ever, you ever stop and think about it? Like, God made it passionate. He made it to feel good. He made it to be desirable. Like, if it was just about procreation, could God Almighty not have thought of some other delivery system other than that? Right? Like, couldn't it have been a wink? Right? <laughs> Right? Or like maybe like you just you bring your fingers together and go, pop, thank you. Right? Like, but he didn't. He created it. And he made it for pleasure. He made it for pleasure. Look at this. The Bible does not shy away from, from, from sexual passion. It says, uh, Genesis 2, look, it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or from the side or out of the substance. This is a really cool thing I'd love to talk about someday about, about from the side of the man. But he, he, uh, he brought her from the man. And then verse 23 says, at last the man exclaimed. That, it's like jubilation and passion and attraction and romance. Like he is overjoyed about what he sees in her. He has this romantic passion. He's passionate and, and just uh, attracted to her. It's so important that you see that. The Bible does not shy away from sex as pleasure. God didn't need to do that, but he did. Think about this. Look at this one. Uh, Deuteronomy 24. Here's a commandment. Uh, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. 
He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. That's in the Bible. Can you imagine like in ancient Israel, you got the commander of the army, corporal, come here. Yes, sir. I hear you're getting married. Yes, sir. You need to not report for duty, sir. You have a new mission. You go home for a year and give your wife happiness. <laughs> sir, yes, sir. Right? Like, it's in the Bible. Just preaching the Bible. That's all I'm doing. Look at this. Song of Songs. Did you know there's a book in the Bible that the ancient Jews wouldn't let like young kids read until they hit like they, until they were in like middle school or whatever it was for them, right? Until they got a little older because it was it was too hot. Look at this. This is in the Bible. I won't make you read this out loud with me. All right? Wouldn't that be so amazingly awkward? Halifax would be like, "What is happening right now?" Watch this. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden? You college guys, you should try the queenly maiden line once in a while. Your round thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel, this is the Bible, is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Mound of wheat's not sexy, just saying. Guys, no, don't do that. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools of Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Your nose is as fine as the tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Uh, you college guys, I've only had one girlfriend, so I'm, I'm by no means a pro. I'm just thinking, commenting on a girl's nose, not, not a good idea. Take it or leave it. It's free. This is the Bible. Your head is as majestic as Mount Carmel, and the sheen of your hair radiates royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. Oh, how beautiful you are. How pleasing, my love. How full of delight. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. Like mic drop. Right? Like, that's, just, just being a faithful servant to deliver the word of God here today. It's my job. I know we're having fun, but have I, have I faithfully dispelled the myth that the Bible is at all shy about sex? Yes? Okay. Let's just get it in our minds for a minute that God made sex and he made it to be good. He called it good. And we have got to redeem our understanding of sex. Sex is not dirty. It is not bad. God made it and he gave it to us. Can I get an amen? amen. Number two, write this down. Now the word on sex is this. Sex has purposes and parameters. Sex has purposes and parameters. We don't just believe it's good and that's that. We believe it's good in its proper usage. This is also to be Christian. We don't believe sex is dirty, but we do believe there is a place for sexual activity, that there is a purpose, there is a place. Uh, if you're writing notes, write this down. Sex is given for marriage. Sex has actually been given for marriage, that, that God gave the institution of marriage, the gift of sex, for the purpose of its flourishing. 
that in sexual activity as a man and a wife married in a marriage covenant, it actually brings strength and grace to your marriage. This is why God gave it. He gave it for protection. Uh, the Bible talks about like just you know, helping in temptation. It talks about that in 1 Peter. Uh, Paul talks about it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said this, about two times a week keeps the tempter away. That's what he said. For real. For real. This is, it, it, keeps, it keeps, I think the most important thing about like marital sex is that it keeps unity. It actually forces unity. It is very, very hard to have sexual intimacy and be super mad at each other. Yeah? Can, we be, can I not be the only guy talking in church right now on this super... Yeah. It forces you to get on the same page, doesn't it? It forces you to get over yourself. It forces you to serve one another. It forces unity. Sexual activity actually does that. It both forces intimacy and it fuels intimacy. It does both. It's an incredible mechanism God gave marriage to actually help us be more unified, to come together in more intimacy. In more intimacy. For men, uh, sex is a doorway to intimacy. Men feel intimate after sex. For women, intimacy is a doorway to sex. Correct? Do you think God did that on purpose? He is smart. He knew that we were going to have to get on the same page with one another. We're going to have to serve one another and love one another in that. It's a brilliant design. Sex was designed to both force and fuel deeper intimacy in the marriage relationship. That's why God gave it. It forces and fuels intimacy. So some of you married people, let me just say, pastor says we need to be having more sex. You're welcome. <laughs> truly, truly, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift for marriage. Now, here's the deal, though. If you're writing notes, write this down. Sex is reserved for marriage, or let me say it like this. God, just, God gave sex for marriage, but also God gave marriage for sex. That God gave marriage for sex. That the Bible is very clear about marriage being the place for sexual activity. That sex is a good thing, but we all know that a good thing used the wrong way is no longer a good thing, correct? Like, think about fire for a second. We all know the, the benefits of fire, right? Like, like, fire heats your home. Fire cooks your food. Fire or electricity is right now enabling me to speak to everybody in East St. John, West St. John, and all the way to Halifax, like, instantaneously. Thank you, fire. Fire is great when it is contained in its proper place. However, fire is also incredibly destructive when it just goes and does whatever and wherever it wants. Correct? And we as Christians have to understand sex as something extremely good, but extremely powerful. And if it is used and actuated outside of its designated place and purpose, it is highly destructive. That God actually gave it for the marriage, and God gave marriage for sex. Jesus backed up what the scripture says all throughout it. It says that sex is reserved for a covenant relationship, a marriage between one man and one woman. That is what the Bible says. It doesn't budge on it. It doesn't move on it. Jesus says it. Matthew 19, look what Jesus says. Haven't you read? He replied. At the beginning, the creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's a picture of intimacy. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
So the marriage is the place that the Bible says, a marriage between one man and one woman in committed covenant relationship before God, that's the place for sex. Biblically speaking, any sexual intercourse or encounter outside of the marriage relationship, the Bible would say that is sexual immorality. It's destructive. It's destructive. You're doing it in the wrong place, and it is going to bring, not bring life. It's going to bring death. Now, I don't need to go and list what sexual immorality is um, because the Bible basically says it's everything that's not sexual intimacy and encounters between a man and a woman who are committed in the marriage relationship forever. It's, it's anything intellectually, anything emotionally, anything physically that is ultimately for the purpose of sexual arousal and stimulation. It's outside of the marriage relationship, the Bible says that that's sin. Now, the Bible, so we're talking about trending. Let me, let me just go there because we're going to go there. The Bible speaks about marriage only as between a man and a woman in a marital relationship. So right now we live in a world that doesn't see marriage that way. That, you, that man and man can marry, woman and woman can marry. Let me just say, I don't want to live in a country that gives different rights and privileges to different people. I want people to be free to make their own choices. We want to give people that freedom, and we want that freedom as Christians as, as well, correct? And so, you know what? Like, like people who don't believe what we believe, you know, I, 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 again, I think the word speaks to it, but we have no right in telling people that they don't deserve the same rights and privileges that we do. That said... Uh, Christians, as Christians, we don't understand marriage as anything other than between a man and a woman in the committed lifelong relationship. You, you can't read the Bible honestly and objectively and arrive at any other conclusion. You really can't. I mean, the Old Testament's very clear, but a lot of people argue, well, the Old Testament's the Old Testament, and, and you shouldn't do that. The Old Testament really matters. Um, but even in the New Testament, it explicitly says, look at this, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, it says, don't fool yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, there it is, or are thieves, greedy people, drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It is not within the realm of God's design. It says in 1 Timothy, the sexually immoral men and women who practice homosexuality calls it sexual immorality. It's explicit. It's right there. It says it in Romans. It says it, uh, it says it again in First Peter. Like, it says it explicitly. And I know there are a lot of modern arguments uh, within the church, and you can go to other churches that are going to say, no, no, it doesn't say that, or God changed his mind. Uh, humbly and, and in love, uh, as, as your pastor, let me say, uh, to interpret the word of God to, to change what marriage is, I believe is biblical error. And, and I don't see any other way around it. Some people will come and they'll argue, you know, uh, just kind of like a revision of biblical authority that God's changed his mind or we were going to read it different. Uh, but the, all, the, mo the foremost New Testament and Old Testament scholars on planet Earth all see it the same way. N.T. Wright, uh, one of my favorite scholars and one of the kind of foremost guys, like original language guys, a voice to the whole body, one time was questioned about gay marriage. And he said, I think uh, with, when it comes to gay marriage, if we as Christians begin to redefine it, uh, we are actually pulling at the very, the very center thread that God has woven throughout creation. 
And that God defined these, these kind of binaries, these complementary binaries between man and woman to come together in covenant forever and ever. There are a lot of reasons why people will argue that God has changed his mind. Uh, but I, I, I have yet to find, and let, let me just be vulnerable for a second. I've looked, I have looked high and low uh, for a solid biblical argument, one that says in authority, the Bible authoritatively says that this is true. I have looked high and low and read so much looking for a solid biblical argument that's in favor of same-sex marriage because my job would be way easier. But I have yet to find any reputable biblical scholar, someone who's actually got some reputation and some, you know, some credibility who's actually come out in, in favor. The closest one ever was Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the message uh, a few years ago. He came out and he kind of gave a loosey-goosey answer and everybody started running with it saying, Eugene Peterson is for gay marriage. He came out about three days later and said, no, that's, uh, that's biblical error. It, it, it just is. And I'm open to change my position on this if someone can point me in the word, if someone can teach me in the word, uh, I don't think there's an exegetical or hermeneutical argument to be made. And if you don't know what hermeneutical and exegetical means, you probably shouldn't be having Bible discussions with people who do, right? Like it, it really matters. Um, I would say this too, one more comment on this. I know this is, this is touchy, but I'm not, I do not want to, I don't want to avoid anything with this series, so I'm going to go there. You need, as churches, we need to judge a tree by its fruit. And I would argue that the churches that have taken a, a wide stance on marriage and the churches that have, have moved the, the goalposts on marriage from a traditional um, are dying fast. Jesus said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life. And across North America, across the world, churches that are holding fast to the word of God, God blesses. And churches that won't stand up and say, no, this is what the word says, and I'm sorry if it's uncomfortable, I'm sorry if it offends you, but Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended by me. And the ones that stand on that, I believe God continues to bless. And, and so for, as for me and my, my house, as for me in this house, like, I, I have to submit to this. And I believe that it's good news, and I believe it brings life. Now, there are parameters for sexuality, but here's the deal, and here's where I think the church has failed. I think the church has done an okay job saying that, but then they've stopped there and made it seem like there are these sexually immoral people over here and people, you know, those people, and then we've kind of like exempted ourselves. But here's what also the Bible says. The Bible, number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. The Bible tells us that all of us are sexually broken. Not just people who are attracted to the same sex, not just people who, who have some kind of, type of different sexual expression. Every single human being, we talked about this last week, every single human being is sexually broken. All of us. We all have desires, thoughts, temptations, proclivities, propensities that actually are trying to get us to act in a certain way that actually is dysfunctional and broken and sinful. All of us. Jesus probably did it best on making sure everybody knew like how difficult it is to stay sexually pure. Look what he said in Matthew 5. He's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. You're feeling good about yourself because you live in a heterosexual marriage and you've stayed committed. But look, he just destroys them. Watch this. 
He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. This is Jesus talking. Just, just, you know the Jesus that people say uh, loves everyone, and he does, and Jesus who, who's just cool with everything? No, he's not. Look what he says. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to, to go into hell. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus himself is saying. He's saying you're all broken and it's not just in what you do with your body. It's how you think in your mind. It's the desires of your heart. And every single person in here has both, uh, all of us have acted in sexual sin and dysfunction, even if it's in our minds. And many of you have been not just uh, complicit, but you've been sinned against sexually as well. The sexual brokenness in all of the rooms that we're gathering in right now is, is immense. It's because we're human. It's because we're broken. I think it's interesting even the words of Jesus about anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Let's talk about pornography for, porn for a minute. Yeah, we're going everywhere this weekend, aren't we? Porn is an epidemic. And I believe like God wants... Not just men, this, this affects women too, and that is a stupid misconception if you just think that only men struggle with pornography. Women, it might come in different forms, but all of us are tempted and struggle with what our eyes see and what our minds think. Not just with what our bodies do. But the church has got to rise up and find a level of victory because guess what? We live in a day and age where, you know, like if you're a young, young boy, you're, you're a young girl, you're being exposed to it at five, six, seven, eight years old. It's not just like finding some, you know, some uncle's dirty magazine. Like if you have any digital capacity, it's right in front of you. And so the church has got to find true freedom in this. We can't, we can't just joke about it anymore. We can't put it in the closet anymore. We've got to bring this to Jesus. I would just say this. We, we do need to reject it, right? Like, like pornography belittles God's creation. It objectifies people. Nobody ever looks at porn and says, I wonder what, I wonder what their story is. You know, I wonder what they care about. I wonder what they've been through. Why? Because they're objects. It, it objectifies. It, it devalues. It degrades. It harms young people. It corrupts, your, it corrupts its users. Do you know why, like, the progression of sexual, like, stuff that's happening in our world is happening? Because of pornography. It's a drug. You start to use it, and you want more and more intense doses of it. So let's just not sit here and play, like, you know, no, nobody has sexual issues except for homosexuals or people who have some other type of sexual orientation. Every one of us deal with it. And it matters because here's the deal. As Christians, we believe that sex is deeply, deeply spiritual. This is probably the biggest myth and lie that you're going to encounter in our culture today. And that is this. It's just sex. The words casual and sex we would say are mutually exclusive. There's no such thing. 
Sex is spiritual. It's something you do with your soul, not just your body. This is what Paul was talking about. Look at this. I want to read this. I'm going to be done in a minute, but look at this. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you say food was made for the stomach. Sex is just an urge. It's an appetite. You just got to satisfy it. You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised the Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his own body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he's become one body with her? Your soul, like that's what Jesus is saying, let, 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 let the, the two become one flesh. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who's joined to the Lord in one spirit is the person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So run from sexual sin. Run from sexual sin because no other sin so clearly affects the body or your whole life as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your, your soul. It's a sin against your whole body, against you. Sex is not just physical. Can I just put that out there? Like, can we just kind of destroy that lie as believers? Like, you need to hear that. In the house, as a family, sex is not just physical. If it was just physical, then why is it that when a child is sexually abused, they carry that their entire life? It's deeply spiritual. Uh, why is it when a woman is raped that it's so much more brutal than if she was just beat up? Because it's, it's, it's not just about what happens to your body. It's, it's your soul. Your spirit is connected to it. Why is it that men and women with the deepest sexual issues have often, have, or they have strained relationships with the people closest to them? Because it affects everything. Your sexuality affects everything. Here's a question. Why is it that most people, I've encountered this, most people in counseling, their deepest regrets are sexual in nature. Because it is a deeply spiritual reality. We do not view sex as just this kind of thing that you do or you don't do. Be true to yourself. Follow your urges. We view sex as God made, God created. And because he made it, he made it and it connects to every piece of us. It's not just our bodies, our minds, our will, our emotion, our soul. It's all intertwined. And when we have sex, we are engaging the entirety of our person and the other person. And we are all deeply, deeply sexually broken. So here's the good news. And I'm going to be done in a second. Here's where the hope is. Number four, if you're writing this down. All of us are sexually broken. Here's the word on sex. Number four, we are all invited to trust Jesus with our sexuality. We are all invited. We all need grace. We're all invited to trust Jesus with our sexuality. Let me say that again. We are all invited to trust Jesus with our sexuality. I feel like that needs to be good news for some people. We are all invited to trust Jesus with our sexuality. So you have a porn addiction? You are invited to trust Jesus with your sexuality. You are homosexual? You are invited to trust Jesus with your sexuality. You don't have to change before you come to Jesus. Oh, come on. He calls you as you are. Like you, 
you are promiscuous, you've been cheating on your wife, Jesus invites you to trust him with your sexuality. You've been cheated on and you, don't, you haven't been having sex with your husband, Jesus invites you to trust, you, trust him with your sexuality. You're going through divorce, Jesus invites you to trust him with your sexuality. You're single and you've been single and you don't know if you'll ever be married or ever be married again. Jesus invites you to trust him with your sexuality. This is probably the most missing invitation in the church today. Because we've separated sex from our faith, obviously we don't arrive at this place where Jesus would invite us as we are, as sexual beings, broken as we are. But I want to just look at one piece of scripture before we're done. John 8 tells us about the story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Some horrible people tricked her and grabbed her in the act and pulled her out because they, they were trying to uh, trap Jesus. They were trying to condemn Jesus to make a wrong answer. And you can't do that because Jesus is Jesus and he just, well, he just judoed them. But <laughs> they threw her in the, like, caught her in the act. They threw her down in, a, in, in front of everybody in her shame. And I mean, she was busted. This woman was an adulterer. So let's not, let's not look at her like, well, it must not have been that big a deal. It was a big deal what she was up to. She was committing adultery, sleeping with someone that was not her spouse and probably somebody who had another spouse. So this was major, major stuff. And they throw her down in front of Jesus and they ask Jesus what the law says we should stone her, but you're all this big grace guy, Jesus. So what should we do? They're trying to trap her because if he says stone her, he's not as merciful as he says he is. But if he says it's all good, then he's not as righteous as he says he is. But watch what Jesus says, verse 10. Or if before that, he said, verse 9, he said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Remember that little thing about we're all sexually broken? The Bible tells us that they all started dropping their stones. Then verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Where are they who, who's condemned you? Look, has no one condemned you? They all walked away. No one, sir. She said, can you imagine her? Can you imagine being in that place like utterly exposed, utterly humiliated, and the King of kings and Lord of lords is looking you in the eyes saying, where, where are they that condemn you? She said, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. To the homosexual who's listening right now, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. To the one with the porn addiction who's listening right now, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. To the adulterer and to the fornicator, he says, neither do I condemn you. And now look what he says next. He says, now go and leave your life of sin. I don't condone it either but I'm sending you in a new life with new power to live free from that. Look at this, verse 12. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said this. He wanted everybody to hear this, so pay attention. He said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isn't it interesting that he he tagged that right there. Like he had a captive audience. He just 
owned everybody. He just set this girl free. He just loved on her like she'd never been loved before. Showed her an intimacy and an acceptance that she'd been longing for her whole life. He restored her and sent her in a whole new track. And then he stands up as everyone's listening, says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. You see, the Bible paints sex as this, this picture. And it's a picture that actually points us to the relationship of humanity and God. That marriage is this, this it's a picture of it. Uh, throughout the Bible, Jesus, Jesus at certain points called himself the groom. I'm the groom and you're the bride. That you're the bride of Christ, the Bible says. It's this picture of intimacy between us and God. And Jesus gets up and he says, he says, if you follow me, you will have the light of life. What's he talking about? He's talking about joy. He's talking about joy. He's talking about the stuff that you're looking for in sex anyway. Yeah, 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 there's, there's, there, there is the physical component. But anybody who's had sex knows that's not all there is. That there's something more we're looking for, and we often look to sex for it, and it's not there. Sex is actually designed to point you to look deeper. It was C.S. Lewis who, uh, he said in his book, Surprised by Joy, he was talking about his conversion. He said he was, a, he was a fornicator and an adulterer, and he actually spent a lot of his young life just sleeping around. And he wrote this. I want to read this to you because this sums up, I think, what Jesus was saying. He said, I, repeat, I repeatedly followed that path. The path he's talking about is just, just, just going all the way with different women. And he said, at the, at the end, I found pleasure. But it immediately resulted in the discovery that pleasure was not what you had been looking for. There's no moral question involved, he said. I, wasn't, I didn't, didn't feel bad about it. I didn't feel bad. I wasn't a Christian. He said, I didn't feel bad just sleeping around. But what I realized, he says, the frustration didn't come from feeling bad. Instead, it came from not feeling good enough. That it didn't do for me what I was looking for the whole time. And so he said it was the irrelevance of the conclusion of, of the sexual experience that marred it. He says, you might as well offer mutton chop to a man who is dying of thirst as offer sexual pleasure to the desire, the desire for joy that I'm speaking of. Here's, here's what he says. He said, joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. What's he saying? He's saying there is a greater joy out there than what sex can give. So, so, so Jesus, when he says, I'm the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, what's he talking about? He's talking about a joy that only he is able to give. No marriage relationship, no sexual relationship can ever give what he can give. So I had a conversation. I'm going to be done in just a second. The band's going to come back. We're going to, we're going to sing all of our locations. Bands come back. I had a conversation this week that I felt like it just exposed exactly what I think Jesus would say in this conversation for us. I was having a conversation with a lady and she was heartfelt. She said, I'm just struggling with the whole, like, that, that the Bible doesn't say that if you're in a committed gay relationship that you, you can't, that that's not okay. And I'm struggling with it because I, she said, I, I don't like the idea of somebody having to live their life to not experience the intimacy that I get to. I said to her, Jesus invites them in their celibacy to an intimacy so much deeper than sexual activity can ever give. Do you understand that? Like anything that you give up 
Anything that you say no to, anything that you, you say no and yes to Jesus, you are going to receive that which is greater, the light of life. You won't walk in darkness. So Jesus invites us in our sexual brokenness. He says, like, come as you are right now. I desire you and I will fulfill you at a level no wife could, no husband could, no friend could, no one night stand could. I will fulfill you at a level that you were born for and you will be satisfied. This is the ultimate hope of the gospel. And so I just want to confront the lie here that says that sex is everything. It's not. It's a picture of something greater. It's a gift from a great God who has an intimacy and a desire for his people that so overshadows the best, most romantic human relationship. I think this is why Jesus called himself the groom and you the bride. I think this is why he did that, so that we would remind ourselves that in him, we are accepted, we have intimacy, we have joy unspeakable. That's the invitation of the gospel. I thought it'd be cool today to just remind ourselves of that invitation. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what all of our locations like. Like there are different people and, and different experiences. Some of you have uh, sexual baggage from, from the past. Some of you have things you're dealing with right now. Some of you are wrestling through certain things. And here's the invitation to every single person. Jesus says, I'll marry you. Isn't that amazing? Like, like get your mind out of, you know, the, the, the stereotypical pictures of airbrushed, long-haired Jesus, that weird guy that you see on the TV. Think about like the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one whose eyes burn with fire, the one who knits you together in your mother's womb, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, the one that sees value in you that you don't even see. And he stands at the end of the aisle and he says, I'll marry you. Come to me. Every single person is invited to that today. And that's what the gospel is. That's why he gave us communion. We're going to end with communion today at all of our locations. And uh, the communion represents what Jesus did on the cross. He, he died our death. He bore our punishment. He paid our debt. He paid for the wedding, y'all. And let me tell you, it was expensive. You were expensive. He cost him everything. And his blood was poured out to cleanse us so that when we walk down the aisle, it's a white, it's a white robe, spotless. Those things you did and those feelings you have and those things that were done to you in Jesus are cleansed and covered. Just receive that. That's the gospel invitation, that you come and you receive satisfaction. You come and receive intimacy. You come and receive fulfillment. You come and receive power to live a life free from sin. He doesn't even call you to something you can't do. He says, I'll fund it too. I'll give you the power to live it. We're going to do this together. We're going to walk this out. We're going to be married. And as we do this, I'm going to hold you up. I'm going to give you power you don't even have. That's the gospel. And so today, as you come at all of our locations, I'm going to pray for us, but as you come and you take the bread and you remind yourself that he was beaten and bruised and broken for you, and you eat the bread, remind yourself that you have been, you've been bought at the price. As you take the cup and you drink it, and you remind yourself the fact that you're sexually broken, but it's by the blood of Jesus that you've been set free and you've been cleansed of all unrighteousness. How amazing. 
I just think it's cool today that you're going to walk down the aisle. You know, we wear these, we wear these wedding, wedding rings. I, don't, I, I tattooed mine, but I got some ink done, right? I'm one of those people. It's my only tattoo. I, I want to go to heaven someday, so I didn't get many, but I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. My wife's got a whole bunch. But we wear these, we wear these rings, right? And how many of you know who's been married for a while? That there was a day like, you know, these rings come in handy when you remind yourself, I took a vow. You look at the ring and you remind yourself you're in the middle of being married and you're in the middle of schedules and kids and all the stuff, right? All the married stuff. It's hard. It's not always romantic. It's not, like some, let me help you guys. Like, it's not always romantic. It's commitment a lot of days. But there's something powerful when you just rehearse that day and you remind yourself of the day. Like, I'll never forget. Like when the doors open and I saw my bride. Right? It takes you back. It takes you back to that place. That's what communion was designed to do. It's like a wedding ring. It's that, it's that symbol that reminds you how you have been loved and how you have been accepted and how you are currently loved. That love will never change or move. And so I don't know what you're dealing with, but here's the invitation for every single, every single person at all of our campuses. Jesus invites you as you are to come now. Walk down the aisle. Let's stand with me. Let's pray all of our locations. Let's just pray and let's thank God today for grace. Jesus, thank you. Ah. Lord, we're not deserving. I think the hard part is we all know ourselves. We know our brokenness. And we're not deserving. But you love us. You love us. You accept us. You receive us. You rebuild us. You restore us. And God, I just want to declare over us today as we come and we remind ourselves of the grace that has purchased us, that you don't condemn us, you condemned yourself. You took on our sin. You bore our shame. And that God, as we receive the grace, we remind ourselves of your radical, amazing love for us. And we celebrate our wedding, our wedding vows on that day as we walk down the aisle. Lord, as we ingest your grace, would it give birth to new power that would help us live faithful lives to you lives surrendered to you, lives that don't dictate the terms, but submit to you in love and trust. So Father, today, would you refresh us? Would you renew us? Would you remind us and restore us, we pray? We thank you for grace. Thank you that there's not a single person under the sound of my voice that is excluded from this table. The only qualification is faith in Jesus Christ. And so we thank you today for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said,